Hello, this is the Morning Rushback. Today's episode is the Big Four Zero. However, on iTunes, it will not reflect this. We now have a secret episode that failed to get edited last week. And I'm not blaming anyone in particular. This is both fell on Bob and myself equally. Wait, wait, wait. Today's wait, episode wait. 40. Today's episode 40. It's 40. What are we missing on iTunes? Dan Savet or Dan Savit was episode 39. Last Tuesday's episode did not get into the pipeline. No, I, I, I redid it. It's on the website now. Is it? Yeah. There's no secret episode anymore. No. Well, that, now the allure, the mystery of that's gone. That was, that was like a good bit. And you just blew it up in my face. Fine. Well, our secret episode was just us two rambling about, I don't know, hot dogs and. Well, Tuesday rambles stuff. are like a, it's like a, it's like a thing now, you know, Let we're me... just here for, we're here for the people. All right. You're right. Good job, Robert. Um, it's teaching him to edit. So we can 50-50 this editing nonsense. Um, all right. There is no secret episode. This is episode 40. We got a couple things to talk talk about. But today, well, first, let's go on to your ed- editing experience. How was your editing experience, Bob? I am not. There's a reason I didn't start my own podcast. And the editing is 90% of that reason. Because I suck at it. Well, it's not like, hard. I you just got to trim. It's not like hard. I gave you the building blocks. It's not hard. So Dan sent me a, a screen share of him over, voicing over exactly what to do. And <laughs> it was good. Don't get me wrong. It worked really well. Like I used it. But the first like, I don't know, the first part of it, you ended up screwing up actually yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's just uh, first like, a little bit. Uh, yeah, it's like a 30 second of Dan just like and that <laughs> thing and like what like screwing up, which screwed me up because I was basically going every 15 seconds trying to follow along myself. Yeah, so, a, I remember that. I that hate – people don't appreciate when you – because I watch a lot of like web tutorials and I've taken a bunch of online courses for some of the uh, web stuff that I do. People don't appreciate when people make those tutorials, it can be hard sometimes for the program to cooperate start to finish when you're like, oh, I'm going to do this tutorial on – how to use you know this piece of software? I'm gonna show you like for yeah. like video editing. There's a million things you can do. Where there's a million great, um, you know, videos from YouTube creators who are awesome with video editing. They're like, hey, I'm gonna show you how to do this cool, this one cool effect. Well, you could like like get everything ready, start the screen recording, everything's going, and then it just like doesn't work. Like maybe you have a hiccup or it pinwheels or just something goes wrong, and then like the whole thing's ruined. Or you have to <laughs> wait, edit, edit that, you know, snip that part out. But with my thing to Bob, I wasn't going to like edit it. I, I use this really quick like email sharing kind of screen recorder. And it just like the first three minutes of it were like, the whole thing was just wrong. I'm like, I don't even know what I'm doing. So anyway. Yeah, but, it was, that was exactly my experience. Dan didn't know what he was doing. I had to pick up the pieces. If you listen yes. to episodes 38 and 39 on the website, uh, leave a comment on how well crafted they were start to finish. Because that editing was just second to none. I haven't listened to them. We'll have to see if there's a difference. But the fade in and the fade out of the music. Good work. Well, just, we've been using. I use Adobe Audition usually. I'm sure no one listening cares about this, but I've been. I typically use Adobe Audition, but there's this new program called Descript, which is cool. Which you load your audio in or a video, and it transcribes it into words, and then you can edit it via the words. So if you delete the 
the thing starts at whatever the next word is. So you can actually scan through it and clip out a paragraph and then it'll clip out the corresponding audio, which is pretty, it's a pretty neat idea because that is a big challenge scanning through audio waveforms to try to figure out where speech starts and stops. Like what, you know, like, Oh, I want to get rid of this paragraph to shorten the episode. It's hard to know where it is, but now when you can like scan, you can search it like a regular document and be like, Oh, we talked about bananas for two minutes. So you search banana and it pulls up where it was and you, Oh, I'm going to cut that whole paragraph out. And that's like 45 seconds. And so it's pretty cool, but it's not perfect. And so sometimes it's, it's a little squirrely when you're editing, but it's a new beta it's not in beta, but it's one of those new softwares where they're just constantly updating it because people are giving them feedback. And it's, it's like an early prototype release kind of thing where it clearly wasn't all the bugs worked out, which I think is fine. But anyway, it's an interesting thing. So if you're out there and you do a podcast yourself, check out Descript, D-E-S-C-R-I-P-T. It's a pretty cool piece of software. They do have a free version that you can try it out. So Bob, you have a new facility. What's going on, man? I have a new facility and the, it's, it's every bit the headache. Bobby Stevens Center for kids who want to play baseball good and do other things good too. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm actually moving into, I'm moving into the road. It's called the Rosemont Dome. It's just a big bubble uh, right near O'Hare Airport. More conducive to baseball activity. They've got two softball fields inside. We'll have a weight room. Uh, we'll have batting cages. A little bit, but a little Definitely a little bit bigger than the facility I had, uh, but it's going to be a little bit better just transportation-wise. Not to mention, uh, like, a lot more convenient for, for myself, just having not having to lug pitching machines to different facilities to do infield and stuff. Oh, yeah, that sounds terrible. So It was what, terrible. What location do you say you're at or where in, uh, in Chicago area? Rosemont Dome. It's really, it butts gotcha. right up against the, the airport, O'Hare Airport. So I was moving rubber flooring yesterday. And for anyone who's ever moved three-quarter inch rubber flooring, my hands are, I had to scrub them to get the black, uh, the black rubber residue off my hands yesterday. It was just brutal. Were they the full size four by eight mats? Four by six mats. Just yeah, four by six, yeah. Hundred pounds each. Yep. They're a very unique, very unique, uh, just terrible thing to move. You have to like roll them up, which is hard. And then there's like there's no good way to move those things. They're so so heavy and awkward. What I've been doing is throwing a two by four underneath the middle of it and having another guy just balance it on there and walk it. Mm-hmm. Seems to be the best way. So if you come here for obviously tips to move heavy things, that's your tip of the day. Because pinching it with your fingers or like a clamp, no way. Grip strength at its finest. Yeah, it, yeah. Pinch gripping those is tough. You can drag them a little ways, but there's just you wear out. I remember when we got a bunch of those installed—not installed, but just delivered from like the local tractor supply or something. Long, long time ago. This skinny, like, kid from the country was the one who delivered them, and he was probably six <laughs> one, 140 pounds, just, like, really gangly and super nice. He's, and he's, like, we like, six or eight of these mats, and it's me and my workout buddy from the time and uh, I think one other person. And we're like, hey, because we were, like, bigger and stronger. And we're like, all right, hey, we'll help you with that. He's like, oh, no, I got it. And just, like, in this <laughs> just amazing display of – 
scrawny country strength just manhandled these these mats and just like threw them in there in a way that we just like couldn't have we were just kind of like who is in this? Awe. who Did is this him? person yeah <laughs> i remember afterward my buddy was like he was like how was that ichabod he called him ichabod he's like how was that ichabod so strong he's like these people just i mean like we've said before country strength is a real thing i mean just the skill with which it's, he unloaded those mats was impressive no doubt when you do it 24 7 Speaking of country strength, did you see that one of the former co-hosts of Mythbusters passed away? Yeah, it's really sad. He was like the really, I mean, they're all kind of dorky, but he was like the really like dorky, super nice guy. You could just tell that he was probably just like the best person. Yeah. Did you ever yeah. watch Mythbusters? Were yeah, of course. Who didn't? Who, who didn't watch it? it? I mean, it got weird after like five seasons, I think, where it just got so obscure. They were, they were searching that I was like, I don't like care. Yeah, like, is this really a myth? Like if you eat, too much pepper in your coffee you might get it was just like i didn't know where any of those myths they got rid of all the core myths after like four seasons i felt like and then it just got obscure and i was like i don't care about this so this is strange good show i might go back and watch it was it, it really was a, it really was a good show i listened to adam savage's book uh earlier this maybe earlier in this year or it was if not it was definitely the fall it was called uh like everything is a hammer or something like that and he just talked about using different types of tools and different, it was like a, there's like a chapter on glues and different fasteners. And it was like a makers, a handbook for people who are like makers. If that makes sense. Just making, making random things. This but, is your guideline. Well, yeah, it, there was a lot of like really practical stuff in there, but it was also just, he's just one of those people who just was always making stuff as a kid. He always wanted to like, and obviously Adam Savage is still around, but he, uh, was just talking about he he got into all that because he was like a prop maker so he would make cool stuff for and he was like into robotics and doing all those things but he would just talk about trying to duplicate move things from movie sets like there was this glove from hellboy which i don't care about the movie hellboy but i guess they had the, this thing called the mecha glove which was whether they like spawned new people out of or something i don't know but never saw you remember seeing this thing on that movie and he's like i want to make my own and this was like a one-off thing they made for the movie that was expensive. That was like every little thing. It was extremely intricate, like this mechanized, you know, superhero kind of thing. And it was like a thousand little parts, all of them custom made. And he like made his own. It's like, I'm like a multiple years. Like that's just the way kind of dude, Adam Savages. And so anyway, his whole book was about that. Like just like making stuff and sounds incredibly tedious. No, it was an interesting book. I liked it. But, and anyway, that was just, uh, I, I liked Mythbusters. I thought it was a cool show and they all seemed like just like good humans on it in general. So that's really sad to hear about that guy's passing. Yeah. All right. So what do we got today? Well, can we talk about the Ford Bronco for a minute? That yes, car is please. amazing. I had a 67 Bronco and it was the best. It was the best. My dad had a Bronco. I don't know what year it was, but it was like a brown on brown on brown colored Bronco, which was to me fantastic like i went right in the back of it just you know there's not no seat belts i don't think the bronco ever had seat belts airbags probably non-existent just a just That's a part tank of course of a, yeah yeah just a tank of a, of an absolute uh monster truck that it was so when i saw it it definitely brought me back i was excited to see that well 
I just, it puts me back in my garage where I, it, it's, I guess I've always, I don't know. I could, I can do certain things for really long periods of time. And that was one of them where I'd be in that garage underneath that car for like eight hours straight and like not eat and just like time just flew by. Yeah. But working on old cars like that, if you haven't before, the worst thing is just the rust. I mean, if you have, if you buy like a California, if you ever buy an old car, you should always buy like a California, a non East coast car where there's not all the road salt. Cause that's why they become rust buckets. But I had an East coast rust bucket and it wasn't too bad, but even then, I mean, 40 years old, a lot of bolts are rusted shut. Like they're essentially welded to each other. Oh, yeah. And you could have a project that like once I became pretty competent working on cars, that wasn't my first one that I worked on. You could do like, I could change a clutch, which is not a small task. Like that's like detaching the engine from the transmission. Um, it's like a serious thing, but I could do that in like an hour and a half. Or right? it's something that I was competent at. You just got to know where all the bolts are, do the things, whatever. But then, so you have like, all right, this is going to take me two hours. And then you start disassembling stuff. And then you hear, and you're like taking off. You got seven of the eight bolts. And then you start to hear this one that's a little, getting a little bit slow. And then it gets a little slower. And then it gets a little creaky. And then it goes, and then it snaps. And oh. then your whole freaking day is devoted to getting that one freaking bolt out. And it's like, even like that, just playing that in my head, that fictional I just had so many rage, like legit rage moments where that happened in like an inaccessible place. Like in the engine, like you, you can snap off a, a bolt in your engine block and you're like, I have to literally pull the engine out of this car now to drill out that bolt. It's just like so finish this job. It's, it, that's the thing with old cars that makes you not want to keep doing that. It's just, it can, any job can become a nightmare or there's just times that you just literally can't get a bolt off and you have to burn it off or cut it off. Uh, burning it off is cutting it off, but I mean, like some of the leaf spring bolts. If you don't, you know what leaf springs are. Uh, I don't, but I'm sure. I've most seen them. most cars or no, most trucks, maybe not most anymore, but uh, they have this big. It's like a spring. It looks like a. It's a big arc, and it's like one. It's basically a pack of flat metal strips. And then when they're stacked together and they're pretty thick, they make essentially a spring. So you, just a coil spring is one type of spring, but a leaf spring is they get longer and longer and longer and they taper down and then they stack on top of the axle. So a lot of trucks have leaf springs in the back still to this day, but just like some of those, like you could often replace them and put better suspension on, on old, old cars, on Jeeps, like some Jeeps probably still have leaf springs, maybe not anymore. I'm not sure. But in some of those packs, I mean, there's a lot of, where that's where a lot of like rust goes and i remember like i literally just couldn't get a bolt off out of my leaf springs to remove the the whole leaf spring pack and it was like a three or four hour ordeal i had to get the oxyacetylene torch out heat it up you know when you heat stuff up it expands and then it contracts and so to like kind of break through from the hole that you're it's in didn't yeah, work yeah. then i had to straight up literally like liquefy it and burn it out just like stuff like that is just you, people should respect auto mechanics. It's uh, not that they don't, <laughs> it's the but it's a story. It can be a very, very frustrating thing, especially on older cars. Anyway, so did you see these tweets about Japanese baseball? I I've only I only pulled up one, and a woman had a mask on, and it just said it literally just said like hashtag Japanese baseball. That's all I saw. I looked at one clip. 
And it was my favorite clip because they just showed that I guess stadiums can be there at 5,000 people now or 50% capacity, whichever is less. So I assume that's 5,000 people. Uh, But, you know, so people are like separated and they have some space, which seems fine. And then they show like a little bit of game action. Do you know what they showed? No. A botched rundown. Like there's a ball hit the first, guy throws it home, they throw it a third, they throw it home, and they just botched it and the guy scored. I'm like, this is exactly it. No one remembers how to play baseball anymore. Like we've just been on high hiatus. Like that's the highlight. Like it's a pro the game where they do. botched where they botched a rundown. Yeah. It's the best you could do is is find like a rundown. Like why is it you can't just show like a guy swinging and missing or like throw throwing a pitch? You're gonna show just the worst, the worst you know calamity of a play. Calamity. Calamity is a great word. Calamity quarrel. How often do you use the word quarreling? Hey boys, stop uh, quarrel. Stop quarreling. Once once every three months. So it's a four time a year word. Quarreling is a great word. Calamity, calamity is a great word. That's a that's uh, once a year. Have you ever played um, uh, the? Did you play Oregon Trail when you were a kid? No. I really? That's disappointing. Uh, so there's a card game version of Oregon Trail, and if you've never played this, you probably shouldn't buy it. It's kind of a miserable card game, but. Basically, you all go around and you get cards and you like sort of like you, you put your cards down, they make a trail. And so you like put a put an ending card and you put a starting card and you all put your cards down to kind of in between to like piece together the Oregon Trail, essentially. And all the while you do that, you pick up other cards, which there's, I can't remember the different types. So one of the types of cards is a calamity card. And so <laughs> a calamity card is like, you know, uh, Mary was bitten by a snake and died or, you know, the oxen died or an axle broke or a wheel broke or, you know, like your thing flooded, whatever. So, but this is the reason it's a frustrating game. I think the first time that I played the first calamity card that I got, it just said you died of like dysentery. I'm like, Oh, and then you just, you're done. You don't get to play anymore. So, like, you could be dead your first card of the game, and then you have to sit there and watch your friends play, which is like life. It's a very realistic game, but that's not the most fun when you could just be, like, out, and then your friends are just out because of calamity. So that's how that goes. But then I won. But then I won, and I felt great about myself. Uh, but it's a very luck-based game where you just hope say, you don't get a bunch of calamity cards. Yeah, you can get like antidotes and stuff, but pure chance. It's pure chance. Which Oregon Trail was always like that. Which was why it was kind of a cool game in retrospect because you're just like cruising along, everything's good, then just like oh, Mary died of typhoid fever. It's like oh, dang, sorry about you. And then you're just going along good again. Then your oxen die, and then someone gets scarlet fever, and then your wheel <laughs> breaks. It's like a crapshoot. And just like sometimes you have a good clean run. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you really need some food and you don't shoot anything. Other times you don't need food and you shoot like five bison. You can't even carry any of it back. You carry it back like 50 pounds of food max and you kill like 500 pounds of bison. It's really sad. Well, like literally the most inconvenient game of all time. Of all time. But it's pretty great. So Oregon Trail. So let's talk a little bit about, I'll throw this up to you first. What 
do you do to help your catchers who also pitch not ruin their arms? Because I talked about this on my other, other podcast this week. That's nothing. I, they ruin their arms, and that's part of being a catcher. That's just part of being a catcher, Dan. Just ruin their arms. If you dislike. don't, if you I'm hitting the catch, dislike, dislike button. Dislike if you button. can't catch like a full answer. game and then start the next game on the mound and then go back behind the plate after your 90 pitch outing, are you even a catcher? I'm just throwing it out there. No. <laughs> I apologize. I'm having some sort of an allergy attack to Bobby's uh, argumentation here. Uh, so, all right. So. In realistically, what do we do? I mean, I try not to let pitcher or catchers throw at all, uh, especially like youth guys. It's usually, look, we don't want to use him unless it's like an absolute emergency to pitch. Um, but you do have some like, – we do have a few catchers, especially in the high school teams, that, that are good. They, they usually have strong arms. They like to pitch. So what we'll do is either we'll – play them in a different position the game after, or we'll just sit them the game after they pitch. Um, I try, try not to do it the game before, because at that point, if you only have three games in a tournament, like they'll never pitch or they'll never catch. And like, you do need, you do need them to do both. So usually try and give them the time off the day, the day after they pitch. Uh, and especially this summer with high school pitching, I mean, we're really keeping guys, 70 pitch max in the, in tournaments if we can if we can't help it some of these tournaments are getting up to like I mean we played a seven game tournament this past weekend where you had to bring guys back from game one and game two to throw at the end so it is getting a little bit difficult I wish the the tournament model would switch a little bit this year but whatever but yeah I would I would strongly suggest trying not to pitch your catchers at all but if you do have yeah. to throw them um, I definitely would not pitch them in a game that they were catching. So pull them out from behind the plate. Let them oh, warm that's, up. yeah. I didn't even, I didn't even address that because it's like, you should just, just don't ever do that. I, I failed to address that for sure. In my, it happens though. It. I mean, you know, like it definitely happens. Like we've played teams this summer that show up with nine guys and it's not their fault. It's not the coach's fault. It's just that you got nine kids that are committed that show up and the catcher at some point is probably going to be a kid who has to pitch. He's probably also yeah. the only catcher on the team. Yeah, and that that is just one of the overarching things to avoid is just having a roster size that's too small. Like you just have to, if I mean, if at all possible. I know, like you said, sometimes you just get stuck. Like my last year with my academy teams, we are down to eleven guys, and that's not nine. Like nine is bad. Like you have to have more than that. But we got down to eleven, and I think one day we only had ten because then someone else was sick or like hurt or something. And it can be really challenging at that point because you just, I don't know. There's some guys that just like literally go out there and will walk five guys. They just can't pitch. Right. And then you just have to like get through games and that sucks. But yeah, it's a, it's a really challenging thing to try to give catchers the rest they need while still getting through the weekend. Because you're right. The best scenario is that you have actual catchers. Like I'm just a catcher. I don't want to pitch. That's the best because then you can just ride those guys. It's their normal position, right? Like they can catch one out of every two games in a doubleheader, occasionally maybe catch a little bit of the second game if they're feeling okay, if it's not a million degrees, right, if they can handle it. Yeah. Basically, they're catching two-thirds of your games in the weekend, and then your backup catchers are catching the second game of that doubleheader, second game of that doubleheader. 
and then you're in pretty good shape. And that's where I think the best way to do it. And I, I don't, it's hard to, to do the pitching and catching thing right without that. Like with my last team, we had that. We had a full-time catcher. He was outstanding. And we had two kids who liked to catch. We were very competent. They were, very, they were good. Uh, but they also played other positions too. And they were like a little more well. I mean, they, now they were more well-rounded. They just weren't exclusively catchers. So right. they would each catch one game a weekend. And our starting guy would catch three to four. And it all like made sense. So now our catchers are only catching the guys that pitch would catch one game a weekend each, which is certainly reasonable. It's not different than playing shortstop, probably. I mean, you're definitely throwing more than a shortstop, but it's not it's not breaking the bank essentially. And then you can start to say, okay, if you're going to catch one game for us this week, and then maybe have to come in and catch like be a backup on another game or something. All right, well then we can figure out your pitching. Like you're going to pitch Thursday, and then you'll catch Saturday, and that's reasonable, right? But if it's your full-time guy and he's got to start a game too and catch three, four games, like that's a nightmare for his arm. Like he's going to have problems in his, in his career down the road for sure. And um, yeah, it's you just, just see that a, good, a lot, unfortunately. Yeah. It's the hard part about doing, doing teams in general is just having like dance, like you said, you, having 11 guys is tough, but at the same time, having 11 guys is still having two kids who are on the bench all the time, like all they're always sitting next to you, regardless of their, you know, if they're POs, whether or not you're subbing them in and out, you really don't do the subbing in and out uh, every inning like you do in, in youth baseball. And you really need at least 13 guys in the high school team just to just to have enough capable arms to get through a weekend. And if you have 13 guys, there's just not enough at bats. I, I'm, there's just not enough at bats in a weekend to keep everybody happy. And we're getting towards like tryout time. Uh, I sent out a questionnaire just yesterday asking parents, you know, what, you know, about next year, do you plan on returning next year? And it wasn't, it's not a, you know, get mad thing. If parents are like, no, we're going to try to go somewhere else because there's, there's just no way you're going to have 75% of your team. That's going to be happy every year. And then 25% that's just not going to be happy based purely on playing time. You got 12 kids, nine of them play all the time. And three of them always have to rotate and sit the bench. So it's, you know, it's, that's a hard balance to, to have like 11 key. Everybody wants 11 kids on the team. You play all the time, but you're not going to have enough arms. You're probably going to have a kid missing every time. Um, and then just to touch back on the catchers, like if you've got two catchers and one of them is the starter, that backup kid is a hundred percent, no doubt going to be going to be upset with his playing time. He's just going to be upset unless he's a pitcher as well, in which case he'll probably pitch, catch a game, maybe DH, whatever you try and fit him in there. But at that point, it still feels like you're trying to find him places to play instead of him having a set spot on the team. So it's, it's hard. I don't know what you do if you're a, if you're a coach and you carry and you're trying to carry enough kids to win games and not get everybody hurt and also satisfy players and catchers are a prime example. Like, you really don't take out your starting catcher, especially once if you're playing in tournaments that have bracket play. I mean, your starting catcher is going every single game. He's your best catcher, and you have to have a good catcher back there. Yeah, and I, it's weird. At what point do you think, Bobby, that people figure out that catchers aren't supposed to catch every game when you're doing the doubleheader format? Because in pro ball, it's huh. known. Like, obviously, the starting yeah. catcher catches – 
six out of seven days and has Sunday off essentially, but those are all single games. Catchers literally never catch both ends of a doubleheader in pro ball. Um, in college, they don't typically either. I mean, when do you feel like that becomes – and it just seems like – and I'm not criticizing anyone. It's just like it seems like it's not well known that that's not the standard good thing to do for a kid to catch both games of a doubleheader in youth baseball. When do you feel like that starts I, becoming normal? Uh, I think it's normal start once at like 10 years old. I think it's normal. Wait, hold on. Old. Let me redefine normal. What, what do we mean by normal? I think coaches know that a kid shouldn't catch a doubleheader back-to-back okay. games at 10 at, years at old. 10, they figured, however, okay. however, I think once those games start to matter, like if you're just playing in a, in a, in a travel league and you've got a doubleheader on a Sunday, I think the coach knows like, hey, we're not going to catch this kid the full game uh, back-to-back. But if you're playing on it's okay Sunday and you, and you have three games to win the championship, like – you might – that guy's going to probably ride their best catcher for as long as he can. Granted, usually in youth baseball, like 12 and under, you'll rotate positions every other inning. So if you're the catcher, you'll probably start the first two innings, then we'll put in the backup catcher. Then maybe we'll go back to the starting catcher. So you really do get a chance to, like, mix it up. Like, the kids aren't catching the whole game. But 13, 14, 15, like, if you start the game at catcher, you're the catcher. Like, that's your game. Yeah. And I think once it gets to bracket play and those games quote unquote mean something to maybe win a championship, coaches will definitely try and extend their catchers into, Oh, well we had an hour break in between games. So that's enough rest time. Like, no, it's not that kids got an IV. <sighs> yeah. He's sitting in the air conditioning and is in the car with a four Gatorades. He's not yeah. good to catch game two. That's but something I, I regret. No. Yeah, that's something I regret. I regret that I don't know what it's like to catch a game in 95-degree weather. Because there's a lot of things as a coach, especially as a strength coach, for example. As a strength coach, you should have done every single thing you've ever asked your athletes to do many, many times. So you really, really know how it feels. And this is, I think, what happens when strength coaches end up hurting people. Like you hear about like that thing, rhabdomyolysis or myelosis. I can't remember what it's called at the moment. Um, the rhabdo thing is like, basically if you just like work out someone to insanity, their muscles can eat themselves and they become extremely sick. Uh, their muscle fibers break down and then you get protein in your blood. Yeah. Um, that only happens with coaches that essentially don't know how it feels to have the people do what they're doing. Like, Oh, let's do, let's do 50 sprints and then we'll do this. Then we'll do that. It's like, have you ever done that? Do you know how that actually affects a human? Because when you have done miserable, and that's why college sports is a good experience because athletes, you do a lot of miserable sprinting stuff. and Oh, man. You do some really tough workouts in college. And uh, when you have perspective on that, then you can program that stuff better. Like for a really good example is, um, and this is my, my college strength coach was great, but at times there's like once in a while things that I wasn't sure if he thought or if maybe he'd been a little distance from it, but he would give us like summer workouts that were like 10, 400 meter sprints with like three minutes in between. And I was Johnny Tryhard, and I tried to do all of this stuff. Like I, I, I was doing it and I was like, coach, 10 of those, I did six and I'm in really good shape and I try really hard. 10 of those coach, like 10. Yeah. You know, and it was like, that was like one example where I was like this, I don't feel like this one makes sense. Like this one's a little too much. And you have to have that experience because, and so now like, you know, later on I knew 
you can't give a kid 10, 400 meter sprints as a workout one day in the summer when it's 90 degrees. Those are hard. They kill you. And anyway, so I regret that I never caught a game in 95 degree heat. Cause I think it's real. I'd be, I think it's really valuable to know what that actually feels like. And I don't. So it's anyway. pretty brutal. Have you done it? We, we used to do, Oh, so like you think less. you think you imagine it's pretty brutal. Well, we used to do like a different form of what you're describing. Uh, we did like ladder sprints, like where it build up, like you start at one and then you go all the way up to like, 15, like you go one, three, five, all the way up to 15 on the football field. And then you go back down to mm-hmm. one or you do like snake sprints and it is just absolutely brutal. Like absolutely brutal. Yeah. We did uh, lots of stuff like that in college. Um, but yeah, I just, I just think it's, it's important to understand because I still don't really have the perspective on what that feels like. I just know that it's not the right thing to do and you can see kids, but again, like i I think it's just valuable to have gone through a lot of that stuff. And of course, obviously as a coach at that point in your life, I mean, you go join the men's league and I actually, as a strange side note, if I ever decide to play men's league baseball again, which I don't know that that's in my cards, but I'm probably going to play, I'm probably going to try to catch and I'm probably going to try to (laughs) play some infield. I never played infield that much as a kid. I probably wouldn't be great. I'd probably make a lot of errors, but um, I actually am most curious to catch if I were to play men's league baseball, just because it's something I never, I literally never did. I have zero desire to play men's league baseball because I have zero to prove, um, on the mound. And I, everyone would ask me to pitch and I just like, wouldn't want to pitch, but I would try to hit tanks. I wouldn't try to run anything out. I would just try to hit <laughs> tanks. And then if I didn't hit a tank, I would just jog to first, but catching would be like a fun, interesting challenge that I'd never done. It's like getting to experience, you know, like a new exhibit in the museum, essentially, right? right. Like a whole part of the like, perspective in the game that I've never done, you know, get hit in the nuts, see what that's like during the middle of a game, which <laughs> I think it's also important to have perspective on that. Good grief. That sounds... How, how fast c- catchers can recover from that. Just because they have to. terrible. I know. I don't want to get hit. I don't, get hit I, don't I don't either, but it just happens and then it's over. I think it's just like, you know, when you're like, your friends are about to pelt you with something and you're like so scared, like, oh, just do it. But if it just happens out of the blue, it just like hurts and it's already happening. So at least there's not like the, what if you knew, what if catchers knew? It's like, hey, John, today, you know, it's like a deal with the devil. Hey, John, on the 67th pitch of the game, you're going to hit the nuts. You'd be like, you'd be distraught the whole game. You're like, oh no, this is the one. This is the one. You'd be, it'd be terrible. You'd be in the third inning. You're like, no, it's next inning. It's coming up. No, 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 no. Did you ever? But play if it's always random, it's better. I feel like it's better. You know. Did you ever play with a catcher who didn't wear a cup? No, I don't think so. So who would I do such a with, thing? I, I did. I have. I've played with a catcher who didn't, who never wore a cup. Like it was the most mind blowing that I've never been like jaw dropped on the baseball field. He never wore a cup. So this kid, he was with the Orioles. I played with him. He, he's also an odd character just in general, but he went to the university of South Carolina. Like he went to a big time program, big time baseball. He wouldn't wear sliding shorts. He wore, so you wear baseball pants, nothing under his baseball pants and nothing under his Jersey. 
<laughs> what? <laughs> so just, weird. It didn't matter if it was cold out. Like, it didn't matter what was going on. He was just wearing a jersey top and baseball pants. And maybe he was wearing, like, low-cut socks. And no, no cup, no sliding shorts. And he's blocking balls. Like, he was good. Like, he was legitimately good at blocking. And I just, for the life of me, I, I couldn't understand it. Like, why? Yeah. Why would you ever do that? Well, I didn't wear a cup as a pitcher in the last at least decade of my career. But I felt like when I really thought about it, because I was always concerned. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't <laughs> flippant about my um, man health. But when you just think of like the possible ways you're contorted upon releasing a pitch, it doesn't seem like there's really a way, like the way I would finish my pitch and like the way my body would be. Yeah. It doesn't seem like I could actually get hit there. I'm sure there's a way somehow, but there's a way, you know, I don't know. Yeah. There's always a way. Right. But just like mice can always get into your house. But, um, yeah, that was my justification. And I, I got, I snuck out of the game without getting hit. So I see, but, but you, yeah. but you're not catchers. Like you're fully. Exposed. Oh, that's so dangerous. And then infielders too. I mean, how some infielders don't wear cups is beyond me. Because... Oh, I never wore a cup. Okay, well, that seems in character, I guess. <laughs> I never. Uh, I've only seen. I've been hit once when I was like a sophomore in high school, but I did have a cup on at that point. I just never in pro ball. I never felt like I wanted to wear one. Or it's probably bad advice for the kids listening. It's for definitely me. bad advice. Yep. Wear because... a cup, please. Yeah. Well, just, well, and that's a, that's a weird thing. So when I was in Turkey last year, they that's a thing they don't know exists. There's a lot of stuff that, they, they, that if you haven't grown up with a baseball culture, there are things you just don't know. Really? So we were doing catching drills before it even dawned on me. Like I was teaching them how to block. I had to teach all, this, all the baseball skills. Right. I remember it was like two weeks in, I was teaching catchers how to block. And then it dawned on me, I'm like, do you do you have cups on and they just gave me this blank look and i'm like <laughs> you don't know what cups are that's right you've no idea not because of their own i mean they just again it's like a cultural thing it's like oh is that important oh yeah i guess that makes sense so i'm like all right we're gonna change these blocking drills because i was just gonna like bounce balls at them and teach them how to like get you know get their chest over and stuff like that just right. the basics which are huge uh, especially for a country that's developing their baseball stuff. I mean, if you have catchers that could just just drop down and do a decent job blocking and cover up that six hole, I mean, it makes a huge difference compared to other you know places where they just don't. Like if you were, if you you know, with all the Turkish baseball teams, maybe there's like eight or ten of them around, like club, club teams. If you're the one coach that teaches your kids how to really block well, considering how few strikes those pitchers throw, I mean, it makes a huge difference because they're essentially like at the 12 U, 12 U level for like 16, 17 year old kids. That's like where their skill level is. So right. everyone knows who's listening that you just don't throw that many strikes when you're that young, right? There's balls going everywhere. So your catchers have to be really good. Otherwise it becomes a super duper mess. So if you're the team that can like actually block balls well and actually receive really well, that'd be a massive advantage compared to other teams in that developmental stage of your country. So anyway, yeah, I was throwing them balls, and, I, and then I was like halfway through, I'm like, this is, I'm a bad person. I'm going to hit someone in the nuts. This is terrible. <laughs> and in Turkey, I don't know what healthcare is like. I don't know how that sets them back if someone gets to go to the hospital. But they had, this had never occurred to them 
And so they had been doing all their games, all their practice without cups as catchers. I'm like, ooh, that's a terrible idea. Like you're going to be in the hospital and be set back. Lots of, lots of money and pain. So yeah. Anyway, it's a weird thing to have to think about when you're coaching. Is is this going to set them back financially because of their because of an an injury to the groin? Well, I mean, and Turkey is like they have cell phones. Like they're the economics of Turkey. I mean, I I guess I can't. I won't say economics, but people didn't have a lot of money, but they also weren't like dirt poor. Most of them, like they wasn't like that. Like they had, they were clothed, they were fed. Um, they had some of the creature comforts that we have, but like no one had like a new iPhone. Like no one had, you know, most people couldn't afford cars or like a laptop because they're still priced in American dollars. But I think a, a Turkish lira was like one thirteenth of an American. Right. And so you get paid 1300, 1300 lira per month. And that's worth a hundred American dollars, right? So you're not going to be able to buy a, a Mac laptop for a thousand dollars. That's like five months salary potentially. So that was like the big gap. And so just speaking out loud, I didn't know what their healthcare system was like, like how the costs go. And, and, you know, you start thinking about any, like there's, I follow a guy on LinkedIn and he runs a baseball academy in Cameroon. He's like 18, but it's cool actually watching the stuff that he posts. He's super passionate about teaching baseball and he's young himself. But if one of his guys suffers an injury, you know, and they're much more impoverished than like Turkey. Like, what does that do to them? Like, can they, can, can he go to the hospital? Can he get healthcare? You know what I mean? Like those are serious ramifications. You don't want to be, you want to be enriching people's lives through baseball not like, Oh, he got hit in the eye and now he's blind because he couldn't get healthcare because his eyes swelled up and like, he couldn't get it seen. You know what I mean? Like you could lose a testicle. We don't have to stay on, on that, but like, that's a real thing, right? Like that's a real thing. We can thing. stay on that. We can stay on that if you want. But anyway, I mean, that's not like, that's an American problem, but in America, obviously everyone is aware that cups are a thing. Everyone's aware. And some kids choose not to wear them or some kids are kind of clueless about it, but everyone's aware that they exist. Whereas in a lot of these other places where baseball is develop, just developing, it's just maybe not a thing that they think about. So and you just wouldn't, again, you just wouldn't want someone to be seriously injured. I mean, when we were in the Dominican, I don't know if I told you the story. So the one, one of the teams, and this was common across all of them, but many of the teams didn't have enough helmets. And so I remember one team specifically, I think they had two helmets for the whole team. So when a guy would wear the batting helmet and hit, then he's on second, he hits a double, he runs in and gives the helmet to the guy hitting. And then he's running the bases without a helmet. And some of the kids, I mean, they were just like such good, good people you know, some of the kids from the other team were talking to us and they're like, yeah. And so they told us that a kid died the previous month. He was running, sliding into third base, catcher throws a third, hits him in the side of the head and he just died on the spot because he didn't have a helmet on. That's what? crazy. Mm-hmm. And you could see that happening for sure. Catcher throws a laser beam down there. All those yeah. kids have great arms taking 80 miles an hour to the side of the head as you're sliding into third base. And he just, that was it. End of his that. life, I mean, end of his life on a baseball field because they had one helmet they were passing around. And so, like, that's the kind of crazy stuff that's, ugh, I mean, so sad, like, that that was a thing that happened. That's but there's just lots of and, and actually it's, terrible. That's it's, terrible. It's terrible. Story. It's terrible. And that's a thing that you just don't think about in America because we obviously we have equipment, but you just would just never consider that being a thing that would happen. But there's a lot of inherent risks in baseball that 
you just don't think about. And some of these, I mean, these Dominican fields are rough. So the incidence of taking a bad hop to the face to any part of your body, very yeah, significant. Yeah, these yeah, are right. not smooth, good bouncing fields. These are really tough fields to field on. I mean, for as good as Dominican players are, tons of errors because of the fields. I mean, no matter how good your hands are, they are taking some wicked, insane, unpredictable hops that you could just never see coming. Yes, I mean, you put a no big leaguer, you put a big leaguer on those fields, they're making a couple errors a game because you just can't predict the randomness, right? But anyway, um, so Bobby Cutters I got a question on Twitter about cutters. Um, I'm a little outspoken about cutters. Where do you fall with cutters? So you face cutters. What is a cutter like as a hitter? Cutter is terrible. I hate facing cutters. They're honestly the worst. That's like usually everyone's like, oh, a good slider. Like a good slider is probably the, or one of the tougher pitches to hit. Cutter is just, it's like it's a tease. It's, it's just, oh, it's straight. It's straight. It looks like it's going to be over a fat part of the plate. And then, boom, at the end, makes a, makes a sharp left turn. And it's now it's breaking your bat off the end of the bat. You know, pop up to the second baseman. Um Tough to recognize if you've got good if you've got a good cutter um, if you've got I guess maybe not necessarily a bad cutter but if you got a cutter that's easily recognizable like you see the spin early um, I treat it more like it's just like a slider. What does like, what what does the spin look like as a hitter? So a spin on a on a cutter that's uh, not good, you can see like a little bit of the similar to a, a slider, a little bit of that dot that bullseye on it. You see the seams. Mm-hmm. You can definitely see like the the twirling coming in. Um, seeing seeing that out of the hand is especially if you know what the guy's throwing. If you don't know what the guy throws, that will just look like a slider to you. But if you okay. know he's a cutter, two you know two seam cutter guy, change up guy, whatever. If you got a split finger, like it really helps, especially when you get to the pro ball ranks. To <laughs> what, know Ars- what Arsenal is that? He just rattled off a two seam splitter cutter guy. Those people don't exist. Uh, a two seam, <laughs> no, no, two seam. If he's got a, if he's got, if he's got a splitter or a changeup, or I don't cut, think like guys that throw two seamers throw cutters. Not to cut you off, but that's like not those. Those don't really make make sense in their arsenal. I'm just you know spitting I mean? off pitch. I know you are. Can continue. Uh, All right, go ahead. But you need like you need to know what the guy throws. Obviously, that's why the leadoff guy. Every time he comes in, everyone's like, "What does it look like? What does he throw? What's this guy got?" Because if you don't know what he throws, a cutter looks like a slider, like a you know, change up will look like a uh, two seam if it's if you don't know what's coming. Like you really need to know what the guy throws. Um, That's my so, favorite thing about youth baseball for like fourteen, fifteen. You when they come in that first thing, like, oh, he's got this. I'm like, no, he doesn't. That's obviously a, <laughs> that's obviously a slider. That's obviously not a curveball. They just right. mix up. They they haven't seen enough breaking balls to know. Um, they just mix them up. But it's like, no, dude, definitely a slider. Like, yeah, what's it what's it doing yeah exactly mm-hmm. like what's the pitch doing what's it how like is it is his fastball straight and it's, you're, the guy's like yeah and then you get in there and his fastball moves six inches and it, and it buries in your hands and you're like what what was well, that scouting yeah. report i also love that they jump to conclusions like it's final scouting report after like hitter number one it's like oh he's got a his, his fastball is dead straight <laughs> it's like you've seen one fastball dude and you've popped up <laughs> like yeah you're not you the authority it. you're not the authority here yeah you missed it guy yeah, he throws one curveball. Oh, nasty curveball. Oh, his curveball sucks. Like, you've, yeah. you've seen two. You've seen one. Let's give it some time before we jump to conclusions here. Let's revisit this conversation in the third inning about what he's actually got. So, anyway. 
So good cutters look like what? Good cutters look like fast, look like four seam fastballs, essentially. I mean, it's been a while since I've seen a cutter in the box, but it like you need to see it more than once to recognize the spin. Whereas if a bad cutter is the first time you see it, you recognize that's not a fastball. A good cutter, you need to see a couple times to recognize like the spin because it's so tight and they snap it off so late and it just looks like it's coming in as a fastball, like a hard fastball, and then it darts darts away from you if you're righty. You know, a righty cutter darts away from a righty hitter and you're left wondering like, crap. That was, is that, that so was the way they fastball. describe Mariano Rivera's chain, or cutter and any good cutter is that essentially they break after the decision point. Is that your experience? Like you've, you're like, I'm going to hit this. And then you swing and you're like, wait, I was going to hit it. Is that, is that sort a of how good, they are? A good cutter? Yes. And for the, the thing about Mariano Rivera's cutter is that he would throw it to all parts of the plate. Like he would throw that inside to a righty, which in my experience, I never, I don't remember seeing cutters coming inside to me. I remember seeing cutters start middle away and then end up off the plate. Hmm. So that's so like, if you know, you know, a guy throws a four seam or he throws a, and a, and a cutter, if he's on the outside part of the plate, you're anticipating cutter. I mean, it's, it's not a foolproof obviously, but that's, you're anticipating that the outside part of the plate is going to be his cutter. It's not going to just be a four seam fastball out there. So, uh, when you're in the box, if he's got that tight spin on it and you don't know he throws a cutter, yeah, you're going to be, you're going to be fire making firewood for the first at bat unless you're, unless you're just comfortable enough to play slowly off it. Cause it looks like a strike and Mariano Rivera obviously is the elite cutter of all time, right? One pitch guy that would just a hall of famer. Well, essentially, yeah, and essentially, it seems like if you could if you could throw a cutter consistently at like ninety two or above, you could throw it all the time. Like it's just so fast and so sharp, and like just destroys your brain. That that and back then, just like no one could throw a cutter as hard as he could. That's what I think. What the difference is, like if you took Mariano, like I don't think Kenley, like I don't think Mariano Rivera's cutter was probably better than Kenley Jansen's or some of these other big leaguers right. that throw a ninety four mile per hour cutter. He just seemed like he was the only person back then that could really do that. And the cutter wasn't as popular of a pitch. He was the only one throwing a 92-mile-per-hour cutter, right? And today, they're right. still not that prevalent. Like, there's a couple of them, but there's still not that many because it's a hard pitch to throw. Um, but, yeah. And, uh, of course, if he was a starter, he wouldn't have thrown only cutters, obviously. He was, you know. So, just, like, the game's changed a little bit in, like, the prevalence of cutters because just so many more guys throw that hard. If you throw a 98... Yeah, you could throw a 93, 94, 95 mile per hour cutter, and then you might never want to throw a four seamer again because just people's brains can't figure that out. Because that was my experience. What I was asking you is that when I was throwing mine, I threw it the most in 2014. When I started to get good at it, I threw some that I remember specifically one, I got a strikeout, and I didn't get strikeouts on it that much because it's not really a strikeout pitch. It's a strikeout pitch when you throw super duper hard, like, you know, because guys will just sometimes miss it. But really, it's not a strikeout pitch. It's just like a, I was going to barrel it, and then it slipped off my barrel kind of pitch, and they can't do much about it, and that was how I used it. Um, but I would get misses on it once in a while, more so into lefties. And I remember throwing one into a lefty, this big power guy, and he literally said, oh, shit, as, a, as he was swinging. Like, he was tracking it. It was on the inner, like, third of the plate, 
And as he was like in his swing, I was like, I have this photographic memory because it was just a really fascinating. And he's like, oh, and like he he realized halfway through that everything he was doing was wrong, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. And he goes, oh shit, and he swings and just just missed it because it was coming in on his hands too. It was like, oh no, I'm like I'm kind of in danger too. And that was just like such a cool moment as a pitcher to throw something that like really you didn't throw stuff that it would affect someone like that. Like they'd swing and miss at stuff, but it wasn't like there was something fundamentally different in that particular moment where it was like, he was very certain that what was going to happen then, then just didn't happen. It was like confusing to him. You know, you know what I mean? The difference yeah, between just like waving at a slider versus like, I was certain I was going to hit this and now what's happening. That was kind of like the reaction. Yeah. The cutter is just, it's, it's a really good pitch from, from my experience, it's like a pitch you really just want to lay off of because it's unless the guy can spot it, which it's, uh, it's I would I don't want to say it's difficult to spot. You threw one like maybe maybe you have insights on how easy it was to control that pitch, but it feels like a little unpredictable on how much it's going to break when you cutters when you, the worst when the you worst. throw a cutter. It's so hard to throw. That's why That's a, a little yeah. bit of a benefit to the to the hitter there is knowing that it's it's it is unpredictable, so it's you can probably get away with laying off of it for the most part, but it's hard to lay off of if you can't recognize it, which is the case of most cutters because they look like four seam fastballs. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like if you get, especially like in a, you're behind the count or something like for me, I use it to get ground balls. And if I could start a guy off who like to swing at the first pitch on an outer half cutter that would cut to the outer third, like he's going to be out. Like if he swings it, he's, he's just going to be out. Like he's going to hit a ground ball to the second baseman. Right. So that's how you use it, which is great because, but the, the, the hazard is if I, if it doesn't cut the way it's supposed to, and it's really tough because it's a very fine dexterous, like it's not like a slider, like you get around it a lot. You don't really get around sliders, but the hand action in a curveball or slider is much more pronounced and it's going to have much more break. So even if your slider doesn't break its best, it still breaks. It still does slider right. stuff. When cutters aren't perfect, they're nothing. That's what's so hard about them. And so when I was learning that pitch in games, it was really, for lack of a better word, hazardous. Because if I threw five cutters, two of them weren't going to be good. Like I just wasn't good enough at it yet to throw five out of five good. So I knew two of them were just going to be essentially 88-mile-per-hour fastballs. And I was right. like, I don't want to do that. Like, if I'm going to throw you a straight one, it needs to be 93. Otherwise, I'm, you're going to kill me. And so that's what's really tough. And then the good ones are great, but and then you hope sometimes sometimes they'll back up, so they'll actually go the other way. Like sliders can do that sometimes. Cutters do it a little more so, where if you don't get the spin exactly right, it'll actually sort of like reverse it, and it'll come into a righty. Yeah. And that saves you because it still does something that the hitter doesn't realize is going to happen. But lots of them just spin. They just they're just an 88 mile per hour fastball, and it sucks. So the reason I'm, just, I'm many reasons I'm very adamant that young players don't throw them because number one, the cutter that we're both describing, it absolutely does not behave that way when you're throwing 65, 75 miles per hour. It when you throw a cutter, anything. no, when you throw a cutter at that age, you have to make it move more. Like you're gonna, it's always gonna just gonna be a sloppy slider. It's gonna be like kind of like a fast, crappy slider. It's never a true cutter. No, because you don't have the dexterity to actually just slightly tilt the axis of the ball, so it's actually a four seamer spinning slightly angled, and actually take that jagged turn. Kids can't do that. So when kids are actually accidentally cutting the balls, which happens a lot, 
it just like goes, it's just like a slow C curve across the, the strike zone. And that's right. not a good pitch. The problem is people are enticed to throw it because they think anything that does, that moves, that's not straight helps is like a good thing for a pitcher at oh, all. More movements better than less movement. That's true. If you're in the big leagues and you're trying to survive, it's not true when you're a young player trying to develop, when you're trying to like learn how to throw strikes and command the strike zone, you don't want to pitch that just like gently curves across the zone. That's your cutter. And right. yeah, kids will probably not square that up as much because it is moving, but it's not a good developmental thing to do. It's like, it's like, it's like choking. It's essentially like choking up on the bat and like taking like a half swing just to not strike out. Like it's something you're not going to do when you're older and it's not really that effective, but it kind of gets you the result that you want at, at that age. But like a cutter for a 15 year old literally bears no resemblance to an actual cutter. And that's what's the big, the big disconnect, like a curveball for a 12 year old, even if it sucks, it's still essentially a curveball, right? It's the same curveball that Clayton Kershaw throws. It's just not as good. Whereas a cutter thrown by a young player, it's fundamentally not the same pitch. Right. Like it just, it just it, like the action is, it bears no resemblance to it. So, and really, if you were to break it down, they're not actually tilting the ball where it's just a four seamer spinning with backspin angled, which is what a cutter does. It's just, it's got a little bit of sloppy slider spin. So it's got like side spin mixed in. That's why it's cutting. And so you're really not essentially throwing a cutter because pitches right. are defined by their spin. So that I wanted to go, I wanted to go on that rant a little bit because it's becoming more prevalent in baseball. So people see it more and they think, oh, my son gets hit hard sometimes. Let's give him something that, that moves. So maybe he doesn't get hit as hard. And like, oh, guys throw cutters. I, he can just like cut the ball and now it moves. Now he doesn't get, give up as many hits. I get the logic, but developmentally, it, it just like takes a deeper perspective, I think, to say, no, that's probably not the best thing. The best thing for you is probably let's get really good at actually commanding your fastball and let's teach right. you a changeup and get really good at learning the changeup. And then if you can throw a two-seamer, so be it. Two-seamers can move a little bit better than cutters can, and they're way easier to throw. I still think they're overtaught too. But two-seamer, four-seamer changeup is much better for a young player than cutter, which just really isn't really isn't a cutter well and when you're and when you're giving it to a kid like hey we're gonna throw a cutter they end up just snapping at snapping uh -huh. it where it's it's not like you're essentially forcing them into a really hard breaking ball on their arm they're throwing sliders they don't, essentially. they don't understand yeah they don't understand what their arm's supposed to be doing for that pitch yeah. and i don't teach well, much pitching but i know like i have thrown thrown off a mound and i've tried to throw sliders and curveballs and I know the slider feels the worst on my arm, just nat like the natural movement of a slider, like with what I'm trying to do with it. I usually try and just throw like a football, but it still feels way worse on my arm than any other pitch I've ever tried to throw. So I can only yeah. imagine like a, a kid who's trying to mimic a hard cutter or just a cutter in general is going to be torquing his elbow in an unnatural, uh, unnatural way. Well, it's, it's, like I said, it's certainly going to be a slider. It basically just like a bad slider. And when you're learning a slider, they won't break that much for a long time. At first. I mean, the learning curve on a slider is some players, when they start to throw a slider at first, it, it has a lot of break, but it's like bad break. It's not sharp. It's very sweepy. Yeah. Other players, when they learn a slider, it just barely moves. It just kind of cuts. But even then, it's not a cutter that they're throwing. It's got cutter action, but it's still a slider. It just is like a really bad 
poorly spinning slider. And that's the distinction. Right. Like the, the, the way you actually get a cutter to cut is by it's just a four seamer, but you tilt it slightly. So now it's, again, it's spinning at like one o'clock as it's traveling at 12 o'clock, right? It's going towards the plate and it's spinning with backspin at 12. Right. And that is the, it's honestly, it was the hardest thing I ever tried to do as a pitcher. And for people that know me, my brand of athleticism, I'm not the guy who's going to go play like pick up basketball and be like really good at it. I'm not like a pickup kind of athlete, but I'm, I have really good body control. Like I'm a good weightlifter. I went to the golf range with my parents. I'm not a golfer, but like I can make adjustments and I can like get my body into different, different positions to like do stuff. I'm good with like yoga kind of stuff. And anyway, so for me as a pitcher, I have very strong mind body connection to my fingertips. Like when I throw a pitch, I know exactly how I, I should have released it, how I did release it, the adjustment I'm going to make to try to release it. And I'm not saying I had the best command in the world, but I have a really strong like kinesthetic awareness of, of throwing in my body. And to try to get the ball to be tilted ever so slightly to make it have this cutter action to reorient the direction of it was the hardest thing I'd ever tried to do because, and the big thing is you lose feedback when you're playing catch a, a, a proper cutter when you're playing catch will not break. And so you get essentially no visual feedback. Like if you throw a bad slider, you're learning a slider, it still breaks. And you're like, okay, right. slider break. I can see it. I can see it with a cutter. When you throw a cutter and you're learning it, it won't break, but you have to trust. And this is where having like good coaches that have thrown it. I had a, I had a teammate who threw a really good cutter and he was teaching me. And we play catch and you say, hey, that one was good. That one was good. That one was not good. That one was good. And I couldn't tell because they didn't move. He was just looking at the spin as it was coming in. He'd say, yeah, that had the right spin. And I, it was just dead straight to me. And even in a game, my best cutters, and I went back to tape one time um, because I knew I threw a good first pitch cutter to a guy on the Somerset Patriots and he grounded out on the first one. I couldn't see it move. Even in a game, I couldn't see it move. I went back to tape, and you can see it move on tape. You can see it move because it's a behind-the-catcher um, view. You can see the pitch, like, jaggedly move. But from my point of view, I still couldn't see it move because it's so fast, and you lose sight of it as a pitcher. So you lose that feedback playing catch, which is, almost, which is why 100% of young kids are throwing sliders because how can you learn a pitch when you're 14 – when it's just dead straight and you're throwing to a partner who doesn't know what the spin should look like. How do you get the feedback to say, Oh yeah, I'm actually learning a cutter the right way. There's literally no way to do it. And so you play catch and you trust that it's going to start to, my buddy's like, Hey, it's going to start to break in the bullpen. And then when you're getting ready to go in the game, it's going to start to break a little more and then it'll be there in the game. You have to trust it. And that was all hundred percent true. When you actually start throwing the piss out of it in the bullpen, then you start to see it cut a little bit. It's just, that's just such a hard, it's a completely different process for all other pitches. No other pitches like that. It's so difficult to learn. It's a tough pitch to learn. It's a tough pitch to, it's a tough pitch to hit. It's a tough pitch to learn. It's a, it's a good pitch if you've got it. Like that's why I was successful as mm-hmm. Mariano Rivera was with just one pitch to, to arguably the best pitch. If you can yeah, I mean, command it and throw it consistently. It's also though, like if you're a younger player, What's the progression of being good at pitching? Like, okay, we all throw four-seam fastball. Like, can you put that over the plate wherever you want before you're just trying to throw, like, spin stuff and, exactly. and get, it's, get kids out, like, by throwing it's, junk? It's putting the cart before the horse, yeah. I mean, I understand that. And this is never coming from a place of, like, 
you know, parents are asking good questions and coaches are asking good questions. Like, why shouldn't he throw a cutter? Like, it makes sense. Like, it's moving, right? Isn't that a good thing? That's not bad logic. It's just, you're right. It's, it's the putting the cart before the horse. Like, you can, I mean, a great example is just breaking balls in general for young players. You will certainly have better results as a pitcher if you throw more breaking balls when you're young. For sure, right? Like, kids can't hit curveballs at all. Even up to 14U, they, like, barely see any of them. It, like, hurts their brains. Yeah. So, if you want the best results possible, throw 50% curveballs, right? I mean, but that's not your developmental plan, right? It's just, it's just like cheating on tests when you're in, in school is not a bad – if you want to get good grades, that's a good way to do right. it, right? Right. So, that's, that's where I fall on it. So, if you're like, yeah, he's throwing this sloppy slider-cutter hybrid thing at age 13, and he's doing great and getting lots of outs – okay, the results are there, but that pitch isn't going to work at 16U. It's, it's still going to be a bad pitch, and hitters are just going to see it. It's not hard to hit a pitch that has soft break across the zone when you're 16. No. You can't throw a 75-mile-per-hour gentle cutter across the zone. They'll just take that into the opposite field gap, you know, and it's the same thing with bad Little League breaking balls. You can throw a million crappy Little League breaking balls, then you get to 15U, and everyone's just taking you deep on it because it right. sucks. You got to learn it the right way. And throw an actual pro style one when you get there, and that's why the changeup makes sense because the changeup you'll throw when you're young will still be the same changeup you throw when you're older. It'll just be better because you've thrown it more. That's a pitch that's going to last. Whereas a lot of young players, they can't throw a curveball right until they're maybe like 14. That's certainly right. not a blanket. I mean, you, there's definitely 12 year olds that are taught curveballs the right way. Um, so I shouldn't say that, but more kids that throw curveballs at young ages throw them improperly where it's essentially they're not learning anything long term they're just throwing it the wrong way now they're going to have to relearn it when they're older that's that's my point but yeah and again that's one of those things where it's i think for a lot of parents and coaches who if like if if you never threw a cutter you're never going to have the experience with it and that's not a knock on you it's like you just you really need to ask someone who's done it and before i threw a cutter i had no perspective on it how hard it was. It was honestly the hardest thing I ever tried to do as a pitcher. And it's like I said, it's, it was because it breaks so little in practice guys. Like you just have to throw it in the games. I'm like, but I haven't thrown this before. You want me to just go out there and like my job's on the line. You want me to go throw cutters in a game? I've never thrown it. They're like, you have to, you literally right. have to, because it's just not going to, you're not going to get a feel for it in practice. It's not going to be the same as learning a slider or a curveball where you can like start to see like, and get good feedback that like, you got to do it. And it's like, ah, crap. And then you're marching into battle with like a new, a new weapon that you don't know how to use. And that's scary. And um, so again, that's, it goes back to the catching thing. Like I've never caught a game in the heat. I wish I had, cause I'd have more perspective on it. I was lucky that I threw a cutter cause I felt like it was a really good learning experience to help other people understand just the perspective on it. Yeah. Because it's, on the service, it makes it's sense. It's hard to teach something that you've never, never done before. It's not impossible, but it's, it's definitely more difficult. It's well, more just difficult. Like we talk about this with the hitting mm-hmm. stuff. We talked about it a bunch and that's like yeah. a big argument with the hitting. And it's certainly, I'm sure uh, talk amongst guys that teach catching and guys that teach pitching and, and everything else in any, any walk of life. Like, yeah. How do you hit a, how do you hit a, a three pointer with your hand with a hand in your face? If you've never done it before, mm-hmm. it's good. It's a fair question. I mean, I'm sure there's a guy out there teaching how, kids how to shoot basketballs that's amazing at it that's never played in a in a pro game but yeah it's still difficult to to be in a to teach somebody to do something in a situation they've never been in 
like, hey, you know, you're walking on the moon, you're, you lose oxygen, like, don't panic, just do this. It's like, nah, this guy might panic, might, might panic. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's where the experience stuff comes in. I mean, for example, I did a video for my softball channel about whether left-handers could play infield or catcher at younger ages, which my overall answer was yes, but you kind of have to do the math of whether, and this goes for baseball too. Like if you have a kid who's, say this is 12U, and you have a left-handed kid, and he's a stud fielder, and he's got a pretty decent arm, he could probably do okay playing short, even though he's not going to be able to make some plays because he can't throw the right, you know, the right way across the diamond. And maybe not short. That's probably an exaggeration. But you, you know what I mean. Like at really young levels of baseball, if you're just going to knock down three extra balls compared to someone else where you're left-handed, it probably makes sense compared to having a right-handed hitter or position player there who can make fewer plays. Like he just won't have the range. He's not as good a fielder, but he can make the on-the-run play, which you don't even make when you're 11, right? You, you just break down and field it and throw it. So that was kind of my overarching point. And with catchers, the main thing is that you can't really throw to third base very well. It has to be like that snap throw. But someone right, and a couple of people pointed out the same comment. They're like, the other thing that you missed, Dan, was that with a left-handed catcher, uh, the sweep tag when a runner's sliding in is way harder to make. It's way more awkward. And I'm like, you're right. That's a very good point. And just like stuff like that, like I wasn't a catcher. Now, if I had really sat down, I would have eventually realized that. But at the same time, stuff like that isn't like readily apparent to everyone, right? Where it's like going to just jump into my brain all the little nuances of being a catcher, right? And so right. that's just where the experience comes back to it. Like you have a depth of experience. I have a depth of experience with pitching. And it's just, I think a lot of times as coaches, you're trying to tell people what they shouldn't waste their time on doing. And that's the big thing with the cutter. Like this is something that you should not waste your time on doing. There's so many more important things before that. Just like if you're, you know, go climb Mount Everest, go climb Mount Everest. Probably one of the most important things the people that have done it before or the Sherpas that were going to take you up there would be the stuff that you do not need to pack with you and that do not matter that you think matter. You know what I mean? Isn't that like the first thing that happens in like movies are like, oh, leave all that junk behind. You won't need it. Right? Right. If you're going for a big journey, they tell you what you actually need and what you don't need and the stuff that you'll pick up along the way. Oh, don't get that. Like, well, We'll, you know, we'll refill. You don't need to bring 10 pounds of food. We'll find food halfway up. Like it'll, it'll be way better. So anyway. Yeah. Experience is nice. Experience is nice. And you can't have, you can't have every, like I said, you can't have every experience as a coach. So that's why you do have to tread lightly sometimes. Cause like I wasn't a catcher. I don't know what it's like to catch a double header in the summer, but every catcher's probably done that at some point and they know what it's like. And as a coach, you're like, okay. Like, here's how I'm going to take care of my guys a little bit better because I did do that. I, I have had that experience, right? Here's right. some things I can, uh, I can do for them to make their experience better, help them along. So, Bob, what, do we, what else do we got on this agenda here? I feel like we've, had, we've gotten a good role here since our started off with a little bit of nonsense. No, I, feel like we've, I feel like we've touched on – Pretty much everything. What do we miss? We miss uh, umpires. You, you had umpires on our on our list. I don't know what you want to talk about. Umpires are the devil, unless they're <laughs> unless they're on unless they're giving calls that benefit me. Then then we love them. But for the most part, umpires just are the devil. Well, we we'll save that for another episode. But I All do right. want to talk about umpires. I mentioned that in my other my other like short podcast just about how to approach them and 
not like physically approach them, but how to mentally approach them. And my <laughs> view is I mean, we could get into it. We could get into it. But how do you I, I, I tell people, well, that's also another good conversation, but I essentially say like treat umpires like they're part of the field, which they, sh- I think that's the best way to do it. Yeah. I, I always said hello to the umpire, like coming up to, to bat and, you're not usually not usually one to argue balls and strikes. It's more of a question. Like, is that the good? Hey, is that really your, is that really your call, Todd? Todd, is that really what you're gonna call? <laughs> well, is that really a strike? Good questions from as a hitter are like, is that the top of the zone? Is that the bottom of the zone? Does he have any more? You know, if it's a pitch outside, trying to get a little bit of feedback from him instead of just basically saying like that was up. Like the guy throw calls a high strike you just look back and say that was up or you roll your eyes or you throw your head back like that's probably not the best way to get on the umpire's good side I mean I always felt like I had a good relationship especially playing middle infield with uh for a lot of years there's always an umpire pretty much standing right next to me um so if there's ever a break in the game you're talking to the umpire uh so I always had a good relationship I felt like with those guys but I think a good point of teaching is if you're a youth player, just don't say a word to the umpire. You one, you're not good enough to say a word, anything to the umpire, like regardless if he's, if he's very bad, let your coach handle that because at, at, in the, in the realm, like you're not as a youth player, as a, as an adolescent, yeah, you talking, stink, you stink at well, baseball in the same way. Stink, you stink, not even stink, but it's like a respect. You don't, you don't talk to, yeah. you don't talk to adults like that. You don't, you don't, lash out at at your elders essentially i don't care how old the umpire is he's definitely older than you are so it's more of a respect aspect but as a professional player or even a collegiate player you you want to have have it let them have it yeah throw your bat take your jersey off like there's there's video of me on youtube getting tossed out of a game on fourth of july in long island so you've played there you can imagine Mm -hmm. how how many people are there on fourth of july Eighteen thousand. Um, 18,000 people on a 4th of July game at Long Island. So when you're getting tossed in the top of the ninth, they, they love it. I mean, they loved it. It was just, you're they're, they're 30 seconds away from fireworks and all of a sudden they get like an argument between the umpire and the player, but there's a time. It makes you so happy. It makes me so happy. It was a good time, but it'd be youth players. You had catchers going back to what we were talking about earlier. Catchers need to know how to talk to umpires because they're there. They're basically hanging out with the umpire the whole game. So if they want to get some calls that they maybe should get, maybe they shouldn't get, whatever, they need to have a good relationship with the umpire. They cannot just be combative every time there's a pitch that's called a ball that they think is a strike. So I think it's a good point of teaching if you're coaching catchers to tell them, you know, have a good relationship with the, with the uh, umpire you know, ask him where he thought that pitch was at. Do not argue balls and strikes. Let the coach argue balls and strikes because you're going to need him to be, you know, somewhat on your side later in the game. You're going to need him to not just want to call balls because you've been a jerk the whole game. So I think that's, you know, your relationship with the umpire on the youth level, you know, 18 and under with the coming from the catcher is important. I don't think anybody else needs to even say a word to the umpires, period. Agreed. It's a good, good, strong message, Robert. Very anti-Robert message. You should be arguing with umpires from the time you step on the t-ball field until you leave baseball. 
that's that's my stance yeah well yeah and and my thing i don't think it's a good thing for parents to go home and explain away games like oh you know the umpires really screwed you oh we would have won if not for the umpires that's the worst thing just kids should always be accountable for the stuff they can control so i just like that's the biggest thing that irks me is trying to explain wins and losses or performance based on umpires like all right you get called out on strikes you got rung up well do something you had two other strikes didn't you like do something with them then you know i mean obviously that's like sometimes it things do get beyond your control but yeah i just uh umpires like shouldn't matter they should just be treated in my view as a bad hop like you get a bad call it's the same as a bad hop like you get a bad call it's the same as up get hit a blooper over your head like what are you gonna do right that's how it should really be approached because they can change the game in that moment, but this essentially like, all right, don't leave so many runners on in scoring position earlier in the game. Like don't make it come up. Make, don't make the game come down to that last at bat. Right. Like if you guys had hadn't struck out in key situations earlier, you wouldn't be in a position where the umpire could screw you over. Right. If you want to think about it that way. So I don't know. I, I think to, and just people in general, I think should be in that same box. Like a lot of people feel like they get screwed over by other people why can't we just treat other people as part of the environment, right? Like Bobby didn't really screw me over. Like Bobby was just being Bobby and it just didn't work out in my favor when Bobby is being Bobby for a minute, right? Like you walk, you walk down a trail in the woods, you trip over a root. It's like that root tried to screw you. Of course it's not conscious, but you kind of get my point. And you know, whether that's like kind of. really the way it is, it's just, I think that's an easy way to take it. Just like, they're part of the game. Good calls and bad calls are part of the game. And they always sort yeah. of even out over time. But Yeah, and you have to, like, if you get a bad call, it's not changing, which is which is part of the whole, like, relationship thing with the umpire. Like, if you think it was a bad call, you need to at least have a conversation with them. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, like, I thought that was a little bit out. Is that the edge? Is that the edge of the, is that the, edge of the strike zone? Because then if he throws one three inches further out and he also calls it a strike, then you've got a legitimate argument or, like, a legitimate beef. But to just fly off the handle at the umpire is not going to help. Like it's not, it's never going to help. It feels good and I've done it and I'll do it again. At some point I'm coaching this weekend and I'm guaranteed to do it at some umpire, but it's not going to help. Like it might help in the overall team, uh, you know, energy, like, you know, wake the team up, whatever. Sometimes coaches do that, but it's not going to help you get any better calls or going to help the umpire ump any better like he's not going to ump any better he sure as hell not going to ump any better for you if you're if you're telling he's an idiot yeah yeah it really just comes down to manipulation how can you how can you optimally manipulate the umpires yes to give you better calls that's really what it is his friend you have to to be his friend well it's some it's some of that but it also is like when you tell them like hey hey john that wasn't a strike hey john that's off the plate they hear it. They're not always just going to go into vindictive mode. Sometimes they're going to go into, oh, you're right. They don't, they don't want to be in trouble. Everyone, I think everyone has, at least to some degree, a desire to not be in trouble, right? Even the most rebellious people. Right. Where like the umpire feels like he's in trouble because he's making the wrong calls. He's going to try to make them better. So I think there's, when you're like, again, not being, not everything you say is an F you to him, but it's just like, hey, John, that's not a strike. Hey, John, that's low. Hey, John, that's high. They're going to, I think there's always going to be some subconscious, like, all right, I got to tighten it up. Whether they like hearing that or not, they're going to probably try to tighten it up because they are aware they're being evaluated in a negative way. 
but you don't want to cross the line when then they're just going to be like, man, this guy, screw him. Uh, but like you've probably gone out, I've gone out at different times where I just, I, I remember once last year, I was like, Hey, I know he was out. I just got to argue with you for a minute. Right. <laughs> like, like <laughs> I, I, I'm just kind of like here for my picture. He's kind of upset. So I just need to like, look like I'm arguing with you. He's like, all right. <laughs> it's like, yeah, exactly. how, how's your, how's your day going? Cause that's important. I mean, you do need a, and that's what I don't like my, my college coach, um, you know, since retired, I hate talking about college because sometimes I feel like people maybe mistake the current administration there, which is completely new staff and they do a great job. My old college coach, he would never argue with umpires. And it's like, sometimes like coach just have my back. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to get tossed. You don't have to throw a tirade, but I'm definitely getting squeezed. Can you just have my back and chirp at him a little bit for a minute, please? Just you know, like that's a valid, that's, a, that's what a lot yeah. of arguing is a lot of times. A lot of times, umpire, I mean, if Aaron Boone sees his pitcher getting visibly upset, Aaron Boone is going to say, all right, he wants to chirp, he's upset. I'm going to chirp at him so he doesn't have to do that. You're like, essentially, their they're emotional agent. Right. And that's a, that's a role that I think coaches need to understand. Your role isn't just to be a dick, it's to be... If my players need me and they're feeling emotional, they can get back to business. Like Dan can calm down if his manager is going to go take care of it, right? That's that's what it is a lot of times. And so that's when I'm I was always looking at body language and saying, okay, my shortstop's pretty pissed about that call. I'm going to run out there, you know, like he's pretty sure that he got the tag down on that stolen base, so they called him safe. I'm going to run out there because he's not because I care. Like the call's the call. Like I care, but I'm not trying to get the call changed. I'm not trying to get tossed. I'm not trying to make this umpire look like an idiot. I'm just like my shortstop's upset, so I'm gonna go out there. Right. Have his back. He can mentally get back to it and feel validated. That's I think part of it. But well, there we go. So Bob, some guests. Like no. Well, some umpires are great. Some umpires are terrible. Just depends. Just yeah. like all humans, there's a continuum. So we got some guests potentially in the pipeline. Um, maybe Friday, we'll see. We do. Well, I'm waiting to hear back. Potential uh, Division One recruiting coordinator at a high academic school. I uh, won't give him away until he confirms. Um, we got a lot of recruiting stuff coming up here, I think, in the next week or so. So that'll be good. If you got a youth player, high school player, it'll be good. Um, more so, more so than anything, just how to go about getting recruited, and you know the different avenues that you can take to get recruited. Uh, not necessarily, you know, what your arm needs to be or what your what your sixty time needs to be. So it'll be some good information coming up here in the next week or so. All righty. Well, thanks for being here. If you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you listen to podcasts, please give us a review. It's a big help to the show. It always encourages other people to, um, you know, it's a review culture out there. So if you leave us a review, we greatly appreciate it. Uh, and always feel free to retweet the show. If you're listening live, share it. It's, uh, again, a big help to us. Um, we're doing this twice a week, and we hope it's a help to you. So thanks so much. We will see you next week, or I'm sorry, on Friday on the Morning Rushback. See yeah.